a message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. Let me invite you, if you've got your Bibles with you, to turn to Philippians chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 19 through uh, 30 together. As Dave mentioned, I'm the RUF campus minister at Trinity. For those of you who don't know, I always just like to mention it. RUF stands for Reformed University Fellowship. We are this denomination's college campus ministry. And so almost 50 years ago now, our denomination decided that we couldn't simply wait for college students to come to our churches. We actually needed to extend the church's arm onto campus, that we needed to go to them. And so we have been sending seminary trained and ordained pastors to the campus ever since. I get to serve as your campus minister at Trinity. Your own Lee Wright serves at UTSA. And I cannot tell you how grateful we are uh, as RUF for your partnership, for your friendship, for your prayers, Um, You have loved us and taken care of us and been so encouraging every time I've been out here. So we're so thankful for Trinity Grace and um, all that you do and love for for RUF. Um, I was supposed to be with you actually back in November. I was excited to come back out in November and I actually was not able to come because I had to text Michael on Saturday that I would not be there that Sunday because Mary, my wife who's in the back there, actually went into labor. So we had our second child uh, on Saturday at six. So I'm sorry that I missed you. I'm not super sorry. It was awesome to get to have uh, our daughter, Story Grace. If it makes you feel any better, she's very cute. So, um, but sorry to have missed you then. Excited to be back with you this morning. Well, we are continuing your series. You started in the last couple of weeks, a series in the book of Philippians. And we're gonna be looking uh, at verses 19 through 30 this morning, the end of chapter one. And just to kind of reorient us to where we are in Philippians, Paul is in the middle of a paragraph where he's letting the Philippians know that even though he's in prison, they don't need to be worried about him. They're very worried about him, about him. And Paul is saying, you don't actually need to be worried. And he says, the reason that they don't need to be worried about him is that there are really only two things that can happen to Paul here. Either he's gonna be released from prison and he's gonna continue to share the gospel and get to live a life that glorifies Jesus and enjoy his life in Christ, or he's gonna die. And if he dies, that means he gets to go and be with Jesus. And so for Paul, that's, it's win-win is what he's trying to say to the Philippians. As he phrases it in verse 21 of our text this morning, to live is Christ, to die is gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. And one of the questions I want us to consider this morning is how can Paul say that? How can Paul say that to live is Christ and to die is gain? And what we're going to see in the text this morning is that for Paul, the reason he's able to say that is because Jesus is everything. Jesus is everything to Paul. And my question for us to consider this morning is, is that true for you? Is Jesus everything for you this morning? And of course, that raises an obvious question. Well, I mean, how do I know? How do I know if Jesus is everything to me? I mean, I I want him to be. I'm at church this morning. I mean, but how do I know if Jesus is my everything? In our passage, Paul gives us a picture of what life is like when Jesus is everything to you. Two evidences this morning that Jesus is your everything, and this will be our outline this morning. First, Jesus is your everything when Jesus changes how you reckon with life and death. You'll know Jesus is your everything when he has changed how you reckon with matters of life and death. And secondly, 
you will know that Jesus is your everything when Jesus changes your priorities. Jesus changes how you reckon with life and death. Jesus changes your priorities. So with that in mind, let's turn our attention to the reading of God's word. And before we do that, let me just pray and we'll ask him to join us by his spirit. Our great God and heavenly father, we now turn our attention to your holy and inspired and inerrant word. And we pray that you would open our eyes to see marvelous things from your word. We know that your word is no empty word. It is no vain word. It is our very life. And so we pray that it would be that this morning. Lord, we know we don't live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth. Jesus, you said you are our good shepherd and that we are your sheep and that your sheep know your voice. And so I pray you would help us to know it this morning as we hear it in your word. I pray the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name that I ask these things. Amen. So this is Philippians chapter one, starting in verse 19, we'll read through the end of the chapter. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor, labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only this, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but God's word endures forever and ever. Well, I was an English major in college. I'm from Mississippi originally. I went to the University of Mississippi or uh, Ole Miss as it's affectionately called. And, and one of the classes you had to take to graduate with an English degree from Ole Miss uh, was Shakespeare. Shakespeare was taught by the department head, Dr. Comps. And Dr. Comps was one of these old school professors uh, who kind of still did things the old way. He only taught this class at 8 a.m. on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. That was the only opportunity you had to take it, I assume, because he hated us and didn't want us to be happy as college students. Uh, Dr. Combs did not allow you to enter the class late. So if you showed up at 8 o'clock in one second, you were barred entry from the class. You could not come in. He would have his TA lock the door so that no one else could enter. If his TA failed in that duty and you somehow snuck past the TA into the classroom, he would stop his lecture and begin to yell at you to leave until you did, which is nothing actually compared to how he treated anyone who did make it into his class and then fell asleep. 
Uh, what Dr. Combs would do in that case is he actually never used the whiteboard that was behind him. He would always be walking around uh, the lecture hall as he was lecturing. But he did, as he did that, he would always carry with him the marker from the whiteboard and the eraser. And the reason that he did that was so that he could find people who were falling asleep and start throwing them at them and telling them to leave the classroom. So you can imagine, as I was sitting there, as a, I think I was a junior when I took this class, I spent the entire semester in utter terror, <laughs> just absolute fear uh, of this man. But occasionally, in the midst of one of his lectures, uh, Dr. Comps would quote a passage from one of the plays that he loved so much. And in that moment, his hatred of us would fade into the background, and his love for Shakespeare would billow up and would be on full display as he passionately performed some monologue or soliloquy from one of the plays he loved to study so much. And one of the ones burned in my memory is that famous soliloquy from uh, Act 3, Scene 1 of Hamlet. You'll remember it. You'll know it even if you don't think that you know it, because it goes like this. To be or not to be. That is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing in them. To die, to sleep no more, and by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. To die, to sleep perchance, to dream. Aye, there's the rub, for in that sleep of death what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. It's a powerful scene. Hamlet, in that moment, is weighing, is it better to go on living this life full of pain and suffering and trial, or is it better to die and end the suffering? I don't know where you are this morning. I wonder how many of us can resonate with that line of reasoning. Is it better to go on living this life full of pain and suffering and trial, or is it better to die and end the suffering? But then he worries, what if death brings something even worse than that? It's a depressing speech, and it could not be more different than how the Apostle Paul wrestles through some of the same questions in our passage this morning. For Hamlet, he seems to think that whether he lives or dies, the situation is lose-lose, to, die means, or to live means to suffer. To die could be worse for Hamlet. Life is hard, but death could be worse. But for Paul in our passage, he wrestles out these matters completely differently. Look back at uh, the passage with me. Look at verse 21, the first half. He says, for me to live. Paul's thinking about life. And then the second half of the verse, he says, to die is gain. He immediately moves to thinking about death. Then look at verse 22. But if I am to live on in the flesh... He's back to life again. Then he goes to verse 23, but I'm hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart back to death again. And then in verse 24, yet to remain on in the flesh. And now we've come back to life again. Paul is going back and forth, life, death, life, death, life. But Paul lands in a very different place than Hamlet did. After all of that reckoning, Paul says, for us as Christians, For those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus, this question is win-win. This question is win-win. If he lives, he gets to go on ministering for Jesus. He gets to labor for Jesus. And if he dies, he gets to be with Jesus. 
It's win-win for Paul. And the reason that it is, is because Jesus is everything to him. Jesus is everything to Paul and he makes all the difference. That's what he means when he says to live is Christ. To live is Christ. Paul is saying that life, real life, anything worthy of the name life is bound up in Jesus, in knowing him. I love the way Dr. Ligon Duncan phrases it in his comments on this verse. Listen to what he says. Knowing, loving, serving, glorifying, enjoying, fellowshipping, and communing with Christ is real life. In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying to you, to the Philippians, and to me, my total life meaning and fulfillment is in knowing Christ, in loving Christ, in serving Christ, in glorifying Christ, in enjoying Christ, in fellowshipping with Christ, in communing with Christ. That's the whole thing. And because Jesus is everything to Paul, it changes how he thinks about life and how he thinks about death. So I want to look at those two things from the passage this morning. Look at how it changes how Paul thinks about death. What does he say in verse 23? What does he say, or what does he say in verse 21? First of all, that death is gain, right? For me to live as Christ, to die is gain. It's better. In verse 23, he says, to depart and be with Christ is far better. Could any claim be more countercultural to us this morning than that? That to die, the death is gain that to die is better. I mean, how can Paul say that? He spells it out there in verse 23. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ. That's how he can say it because he gets to be with Christ. Death is the door to Jesus for the Christian. We get to be with Jesus on the other side of that door. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, after talking about the glories of Christ's victorious life and death and resurrection, he writes, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? He's almost taunting death in that moment because of what Jesus has done on his behalf and on ours. And so what Paul says is that for the Christian, death is no longer a thing to be feared, but something to be endured for the ultimate prize that lies behind it, which is Christ. We get through death to get Jesus. And so I asked the question as we began this morning, how do you know if Jesus is everything to you? One diagnostic question you might use to help you answer that, what happens when you think about dying? I know it's a morbid question to ask. What happens when you think about dying? And I'll confess, as I was preparing this week, as I asked myself that question, it's an easy enough thing for me just to throw out here from up front, but as I was wrestling with it myself, I'll just confess what happened to me is that I I get nervous. As I thought about death, actual death, my death, not just death as some concept out there, but as something that is going to happen to me one day. My my chest tightened up a little bit. I got nervous because I don't like to think about it. But as I did that, the beauty of what Paul is saying here began to wash over me. Because what is it that we as Christians believe? We believe to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. I love the way that our catechism phrases it. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number 37. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? Answer, the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness. 
and do immediately pass into glory and their bodies being still united in Christ do rest in their graves till the resurrection. What happens? We're made perfect in holiness. No more sin. And we pass into glory. We go into the presence of God. We get to see Jesus. Can you imagine that this morning? Can you imagine seeing Jesus face to face? The son of God who laid down his life for yours while you were still a sinner, while you were yet his enemy. The one who lovingly gave it up, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, that joy being you, that you will get to see him face to face. And as I start to reflect on that, I can almost see how Paul started to get here where you could start to think about death that way, that to die would be gain. I can't say that I'm all the way there yet in my sinful flesh, but I start to see it. Yes, you would get to see Jesus. That would be worth it. But lest we think that Paul is inviting us to simply sit around waiting to die, reflecting morbidly on our death, look at what he says about life. He says in verse 21 that to live is Christ. We've already discussed some of what that means, but he unpacks it further in verse 22. For if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. And he goes on throughout the rest of the passage to unpack what fruitful labor means in verses 24 through 26. He gets to be with the Philippians. He gets to watch them progress in the faith and grow in their joy. So because Jesus is everything to Paul, if he's released from prison, if he gets to live, if he doesn't have to yet die, he's ecstatic about that because that means more ministry, more talking about Jesus, more pastoring and mentoring other people and seeing them grow in their love for God and in their knowledge of him. Here's another diagnostic question for you this morning to help you answer the question, is Jesus everything to me? When you think about the rest of your life, what gets you excited? As you think about how much time you have left on this earth, what makes you excited about that time that you have left? And for Paul, he answers that question by saying, it's more life means more opportunities to talk about Jesus. More opportunities to share the gospel. More opportunities to help other Christians mature in their faith. It gets Paul so excited that he almost can't decide which he would prefer. Look back at verses 23 and 24. I'm hard pressed between the two, he says. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that's far better but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Paul loves the Philippians so much and is so excited about the idea of seeing them grow in their faith and in their joy that he is torn between that and going to be with Jesus. Paul is struggling to decide which he would rather have in that moment. Um, I told you that we just had our second child born uh, back in November story. Our daughter, our son Cooper uh, turned two back in October. And right now at this point as a two-year-old, he is in a very big Hot Wheels phase. We have got, we don't, we cannot get out of Target without buying three Hot Wheels cars. I don't know what the deal is. But one of the problems that we have is when we try to leave to go anywhere, Cooper wants to take all of his cars with him. Every single Hot Wheel that he has, which at this point is a number of cars. And we have just realized we can't, buddy, you can't do that. You can't take all your cars. This is going to take us forever to go anywhere. So we have struck a deal with Cooper. You can take four cars. I don't know why we decided on four. I don't know where we got that, but we said, you can take four. 
And it is so entertaining as his dad to watch the agony with which this two-year-old tries to decide which cars are going this time, right? Which ones are in favor? Which one will serve him well on this particular outing? He struggles to choose. He struggles to know because they're all his favorite. And Paul, when faced with these two decisions, is in agony. He can't choose between going to see Jesus and staying to tell more people about him. He is hard pressed. He almost can't choose. I mean, can you imagine getting to that place where that's how you reckon with matters of life and death? That Jesus so consumes everything that you think about that when you think about the scariest thing we know how to think about, death itself, all that you can think about is Jesus on the other side of it. And when you think about your life and how you're gonna plan it and what you're gonna do with it, the thing that most of us spend our days thinking about and dreaming about, all you can think about is Jesus and what he would have you do with that time. When Jesus is our everything, that's what begins to happen. The choice between getting to be with Jesus or seeing more people grow and in their knowledge and love of him becomes a really tough choice. So let me ask it again, is Jesus everything to you this morning? One of the ways that you can know that Jesus is everything is that you've changed how you think about life and death. More life is exciting because it's more time to talk about Jesus, to know Jesus, to grow in your love and affection for him. And death has lost its sting for you because you know on the other side of that door is where he is, that you get to see him face to face. So number one, when Jesus is your everything, it changes how you reckon with matters of life and death. But secondly, in the passage, Jesus also changes your priorities. When he becomes your everything, he changes your priorities. Paul displays another way you can know that Jesus is everything to you. He changes how you make decisions. Look down at verses 25 and 26. Paul says, convinced of this, that remaining in the flesh is more necessary for the Philippians, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So when faced with a tough choice between going to be with Jesus and ministering to the Philippians and watching them grow, Paul says, I wanna stay. I wanna stay to be with you. Why? Because it's better for them. It's better for the Philippians. Jesus changes Paul's priorities. It's no longer what's best for Paul. What does Paul want? What do I, how do I wanna do things? What would be best for my life? It's what's best for his brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me give you another diagnostic question this morning as we think about whether Jesus is our everything. As you make decisions, decisions about the future, how do your brothers and sisters in Christ factor into your decision-making? How does your role in this church factor into the decisions that you make about the future? Do you think about what's best for your church and those God has placed in your life as you evaluate future decisions? For those of you who are members at Trinity Grace here this morning, let me ask it this way. Are you factoring in the good of your brothers and sisters in Christ here as you make decisions about your career? about what house you're gonna buy next. Look, I, I get these things are rarely black and white, right? It's not so easy as all that. But is it even a part of your calculus? Do you even think about it as you make decisions about the future? Because Paul is telling us this morning that Jesus changes our priorities. It's no longer about what's best for me. 
I'm thinking about the family that God has given me. Paul unpacks this a little bit further here at the end of our passage down in verse 27. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. When Jesus is your everything, you begin to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. Now, when I say live a life that's worthy of the gospel, I know what some of us hear. We hear, okay, so I've got to be worthy of the gospel. I've got to go earn God's favor. I've got to go be obedient uh, with how I live so that God will forgive me and let me into the good place when I die. That's immediately where many of our minds goes. But don't forget what Paul has said elsewhere already in Philippians. What he said earlier in chapter one, verse six. What did he say there? It was God who began a good work in you and who will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Paul has been at pains to emphasize over and over and over again that it is God who saves us. It is God who is changing us. It is God who will ultimately make us perfectly into the image of his son, Jesus, on that last day. So we do not make ourselves worthy. He does that. So that means what Paul is inviting us into here this morning is he says, live a life worthy of the gospel is to live out that identity. Live like that's true. Live like what Jesus has said of you is true. We don't obey the commands of scripture in order to be accepted by God. As Christians, we obey them because we already have been accepted by God through Jesus Christ. We don't obey for acceptance. We obey from our acceptance. We live out the identity that he has proclaimed for us. So Paul says, live like it's true. Live like the gospel is true for you. How will we know we're doing that? He gives you examples there in verses 27 through 28. How do you know you're living a life worthy of the gospel? You stand firm in one spirit. That is the Holy Spirit. You rely on the Holy Spirit for your life. And you have one mind with your fellow believers. What he's gonna call in the next chapter, the mind of Christ Jesus, that we are unified. How do you know you're living a life worthy of the gospel? You are united with your fellow believers as you work together for the gospel. That word striving that Paul uses there in verse 27 is is a sports term. It's fighting together for the gospel is a team sport. We are in this together. So a way you know you're living a life worthy of the gospel is that you've come alongside other Christians. You to share the good news of Jesus with the world. My RUF campus minister, when I was in college, used to say that there are no Lone Ranger Christians. Nobody does this alone. Nobody makes it by themselves. Jesus did not bring us into relationship with him just to be in relationship with him. He has brought us into his body. We are a family. We are meant to follow him together. And Paul here in verses 28 and 29 actually gives us a few reasons why that's really important that we do this together. I wonder if you caught it. Number one, he says, we are opposed. He tells the Philippians, don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. The Philippians have people that oppose them in the gospel. I don't know what it's like for you where you live uh, and work, but my sense is that we probably all feel this to some extent. We live in a culture that is happy for us to be Christians as long as we keep it to ourselves, right? We're not being actively persecuted. No one's trying to run us out of town yet. That day may come, but we're not there right now. But our culture is saying that's fine for you as long as you keep it to yourself. There's a social pressure and expectation 
that we'll do what's good for us and they'll be allowed to do what's good uh, for them. That we just need to keep it to ourselves. But of course, we can't do that. We can't do that. Jesus gave us a commission. He said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you. So we can't keep it to ourselves. So how do we do that in a world that finds it deeply offensive? The short answer from Paul here is that we do it together. What does he say in verse 27? Side by side. That we bear witness to God together, to the good news of Jesus together. We rely on the Holy Spirit unified with each other. There's one other reason that Paul mentions here in verse 29 that it's important that we do this together and it's because we're going to suffer. Look back at verse 29. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. I wish we had time to unpack everything that that means this morning. Let me just encourage you, if you were not here last week, or or even if you were, go back and listen to Michael's sermon from last week, because he had some great thoughts on suffering in the Christian life. For our passage, I just want to point out that one of the ways suffering is a gift is that it's meant to bring us into community. Yes, we... We, we bear our burdens with one another. We certainly ought to do that. It brings us into community as we suffer, right? We're able to share those needs with each other and grow closer with one another. But more importantly than that, it brings us into community with Jesus. As we suffer, we are reminded that he suffered for us first, that Jesus laid down his life for us. This is how we begin to be able to think about suffering as a gift, as hard as that is, because Jesus has suffered for us. And so it's been granted to us to suffer with him. So when Christ is everything to you, your priorities begin to change. Let me finish just where I started with this. Is Jesus everything to you this morning? Has he radically shifted the way that you think about life and death? Has he radically shifted your priorities about how you dream about the future? about how you make decisions about your family, about your career, about your life? Is he all-consuming to you this morning? And if not, can I invite you to look back to the cross? Look at who he is. There's a temptation that we have to make this into a burden, to be like, oh, he's right. Preacher's right. I've got to get this together. I've got to start working on this more. But that's not what Paul's inviting us into. He's inviting us to look to the face of Jesus, who loves us not an overbearing taskmaster, the one who laid down his life for us. Is he everything to you this morning? Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century Baptist preacher, was visiting someone in a poor section of London when he passed by a window where he saw a poor old woman uh, sitting in her apartment. And all she had was this little table, rough table, rough chair in her fireplace. She had a single coal and it was a very cold day. He relates to us. And she was sitting there with this small little loaf of bread, all she had to eat that day. And as Spurgeon walked by her window, he heard her say, as she began to pray grace, and this was her prayer, all this in Jesus too. All this in Jesus too. Jesus was everything for her. And so it had radically shifted how she thought, even about her meager provisions. That's the perspective shift that we are talking about, that Paul wants us to have this morning for you to be able to echo him, to live as Christ and to die is even better. 
Let me pray for us this morning that that would happen for us anew before we go to the Lord's table. Our great God and heavenly Father, we praise you for the gift of your son, Jesus, that you have called us into relationship with you, that he has lived the life we could not live, perfectly keeping every part of your law, that he has died the death for our sin that we ought to have died, that you poured out your wrath upon him, that we might be spared, and that he willingly did that for us because of your love for us, that you willingly gave him and he willingly gave himself up for us, and that he sends his spirit even now to be with us. God, I pray even in this season where death has come much closer to all of us, perhaps than it ever has before, God, would we as Christians be able to think about it, even as Paul did, that death is as painful as it is, as hard as it is, as scary as it is, for the Christian is the doorway to Jesus himself. And God, I pray you would help us to think about our lives differently, that we would reorder our priorities around you, that you would change how we think about giving our lives away for our brothers and sisters in Christ and for our neighbors who don't know you. Jesus, would you become so all-consuming to us even this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.